Hello and welcome to another episode of the Shock Doctors podcast. I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Gerandese. And we are going to be spending five nights at Freddy's. Also, yes. we're the Shock Doctors, but I think you knew that. I guess it's worth pointing out right off the bat that neither one of us is a FNAF stan. Yeah, far from it. I've played part of the first game, roughly half, if memory serves, uh, at my co-host's behest. Uh, and then accidentally deleted the save file and then did not have it in me to replay the two or three nights I forget that I had already beaten. I do find that game stressful, and I I, I don't want to split hairs semantically. You know, there are a lot of people who try to weasel out of saying, that, you know, it's not, it's not scary, it's just startling, you know, that kind of thing. And I do think that the dread of the startle is the main fear experience that game. I mean, it's not like deep-seated existential dread you know no. it's much more surface level uh but it is from what i played effective for what it is i find the animatronics completely impossible to take seriously and so i resent the game because li literally anything could be popping up and if it was attended by a loud noise and there was some anticipation going in it would give me the little the little jolt and then i would be left feeling kind of angry because i'm not scared of frederick fazbear and his cohorts <laughs> uh, co cohorts there was an amusing indie game from some years ago i think piggybacking on the fnaf craze called what was it called originally i think originally it was called spooky's house of jump scares and then uh, for, for whatever reason they had to change the name but in that game you're going through a house with a you know i think a thousand procedurally generated rooms and periodically little cartoon like cardboard cutouts of ghosts and cute little spiders and different ghoulies like that will pop off the wall accompanied by just an ear-splitting screech <laughs> <laughs> and it's a very nerve-wracking experience despite the fact that the actual scare is incredibly phoned in and that's honestly how i feel about five nights from again what little i've played i am not afraid of the animatronics the setup is rather neatly done. The setting is fine. I'm a child of the 90s. I miss Chuck E. Cheese. Right. Uh, but, the, you know, it's it, there's a disconnect there for me between how scared I feel. It gets my hackles up in a way that I find kind of difficult to describe. And I do find it scary, but it's scary in a way that makes me resentful and make me yeah. want to, makes me want to default to different language. Like, mm. I'm not scared. I'm just, you know, it's just stressful. It's just startling, blah, blah, blah. It scares uh, you, know. you, but in a way that you resent, right? Because I don't, I don't, I'm not even phobic when it comes to like mascot costumes. You know, whether it's Disneyland uh -huh. or what have you, it's just not does nothing for me. So even if the like costume design had been a little different and had looked less doofy, what's his name? It was in the credits. Scott Cawthon would have uh, been fighting an uphill battle there, but he doesn't need to please me. God knows. He's, you know, a millionaire many times over now, I would have to assume. Yeah, I would imagine so. I'm in broad agreement with pretty much everything you said. I think a couple of the kind of still frame images of Freddy in that first FNAF game are, like, just low res enough and lit in such a way that they squick me out a little bit. Yeah, yes, I mean... It, Seeing anything that you can't quite identify on a low-res security camera kind of gives you the heebs. 
even if once you I do identify it, you're like, oh, that's Barney the dinosaur <laughs> <laughs> propped up in the yeah. corner. <laughs> but yeah, it mostly is the fear of stress. <laughs> Basically, the, the fear of the jump scare, the anticipation of the jump scare. And yeah, like you say, we played the first two or three nights of the first game together and experienced technical difficulties and never went back. I initially bought all five games in a Steam pack for like 10 bucks when there was a sale. Mm -hmm. I have not touched two through four or sister location, I think is what the fifth one's called. And I know diddly shit about the lore. And I don't know if you've read anything about it or not. Um, I used to many years ago. I think back when FNAF was really at its at its peak in terms of like pop cultural saturation, mm -hmm. I used to hate watch the occasional lore video on YouTube just to try to get my head around what the fuck was you know what the what the appeal was what the hook was, and my sense of it then as now is that it's a lot at least when it comes to the first game, it's a case study in what a fan base can do with their imaginations when you really give them very little to go on. Like mm -hmm. the, that, that first game you're starting your first night, you get a call from whoever hired you over the phone kind of saying, uh, here's how the game works, but dressed up in, yeah. you know, in universe language. And there happens to be a fan on the desk in front of you. And like the fan became a meme just because there was nothing else to, <laughs> for for the, the 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 game's rabid fans to sort of hang their imaginations on and like like phone guy the identity of phone guy became hotly debated from what i understand and at one point in his dialogue he has a throwaway line to how freddy fazbear's pizzeria lost popularity after the bite of 87 and it's pretty clearly just like a, a joke. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's not like a lore drop. It's just, oh, this place is kind of seedy and mysterious. And the bite of 87 is a funny phrase in a Chuck E. Cheese context. But there are just reams and reams, I'm sure, of wiki articles written about the bite of 87. And, ooh, what is it? You know, what? who got bit? Who did the what? Whatever, you know. It's And it, then... Eventually, or I think actually probably very quickly, the series caught up with the fan base's need for stuff to chew on in the mm -hmm. lore department, but it was not supposed to be a lore machine right out of the gate. And I think that's, you know, as reluctant as I was to go back to that first game, I have next to no interest in its sequels because increasingly you have to try to give a shit about the lore and i just can't <laughs> yeah well all this is to say that we will not be providing any commentary as to whether or not the film diverges in any meaningful way or yeah. ways from I the video game's say, lore i will say that when the name william afton came up it jogged it, i felt dust shaking somewhere in the recesses of my brain <laughs> You know, it jogged something, like a, a faint memory of a memory of having once heard that name in a YouTube video or on a message board somewhere. William Afton as a name in, like, a horror context. Not scary. 
I mean, not scary, but also in a weird way, it makes me think of like an obscure Resident Evil villain. It has a video gamey. It's hard to say just what it is phonetically that makes it sound like a name that belongs in a video game rather than a movie, but it does have that slightly debased quality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's, I, it, it, William Afton. He's not Spencer. He's also not the guy from Resident Evil Zero. He's right. like, if they had to make like a midquel or yet another prequel for Resident Evil, it's like, oh, this is the third guy. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> when you're subordinate to the Final Fantasy leech lord that they retconned in there for, <laughs> for RE Zero, you're you're not doing so hot. Um, yeah. I wish we were reviewing the upteenth resident evil movie instead of this i actually started jotting down <laughs> as a I would just sometime during the credits because what happened was and we'll get into the actual plot rundown in a moment there's a prologue and then the credits and as the credits were rolling you see the creatures for the first time the animatronics and i'm almost like an anti-fan when it comes to fnaf because as soon as those monsters popped on screen something inside of me just like just shut down i i just don't give a shit about <laughs> freddy and chica and foxy, foxy and bonnie yeah that sounds right and it's worse even than being a hater because i think haters get like a kind of perverse enjoyment out of dunking on stuff that they don't like but when when freddy and company were trotted on screen for the first time. I just checked out for a couple minutes. And what I started doing was jotting down video games that I thought would make better movies than Five Nights at Freddy's. I wrote <laughs> them down in the order that they occurred to me. Uh, I wrote down Dig Dug, which could actually be <laughs> quite quite scary if you did it as sort of a, um, you know, like a subterranean horror like a action thing. Yeah, exactly. Let's see. Quop. Uh, <laughs> which you could do is like an like an inspirational an, an inspirational sports biopic oh about a guy God. who just runs like that they, you know starring jake gyllenhaal yeah right. <laughs> they don't want to let him compete understandably because he can't do basic perambulation <laughs> but then he you know dazzles them all tomb raider again third time's the charm yeah uh zoo tycoon <laughs> and ski free is the last one <laughs> which could also be quite scary with the the, the that's Sasquatch. another case in point if, if the yeti in ski free was accompanied by like a house rattling jump scare noise that game would be as scary as five nights at freddy's you know there would be no material difference between the two and I, I kind of expected to keep jotting down titles like that all the way through the movie because I expected to be bored out of my skull. And I didn't, and it's not because I'm afraid of running jokes into the ground, because I'm not. I don't, no. unfortunately, I don't have that mental safeguard. I sometimes wish I did. I think the real reason, and, you know, I, I got busy taking notes on the actual movie playing in front of me, but I think the real reason that I abandoned that bit is because I don't know if we're going to have our second ever Siskel and Ebert meltdown in our hands, but I wound up not hating the movie 
as much as I expected to. It is not good, but I found it diverting and not. I, I turned to, and I guess I can put this question to you as well. I turned to bees while we were watching it towards the end, and I said, "Would it astonish you to learn that I don't completely abhor this?" <laughs> and my answer, I, I don't know what bees's answer was. The complacent shrug. Okay. My answer is no, it does not shock me for perhaps the simplest reason of all. I didn't completely abhor it myself. All right. Well, as per usual, you you and I are annoyingly on almost exactly the same (laughs) wavelength. Pretty much simpatico. I think Uh, the last time that our opinion diverged even to a small degree was probably the boogeyman. Yeah. Maybe there's been one since then. And then before the boogeyman, I don't know, maybe the turning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I think we we might disagree a little bit more often than that, but usually it's just a matter of degree. Like, you think a movie is fine. I think a movie is a six and a half or a seven rather than a six or a 5.5. Right. Yeah, when you when you put it numerically, it really it's not you know it's never it's never worth fighting about. No, and yeah, like like you say, we're more or less on the same page again. I agree, it's not good. I was not for the most part scared, even oh, no. really to the extent that the video game exercises the previously discussed fear of the jump scare. Right. Well, know, that, anticipatory the... thing. The reason I went on that rant is because I wanted to compare and contrast in the post-break, but might as well put it all out there now. I didn't find the movie remotely scary, and I know that anything can be made scary. The game is proof positive. Mm -hmm. But it's not, I don't think, filmmaking ineptitude that makes it not scary. I think that it reflects the fact that maybe Emma Tammy feels the same way about the monsters that I do, (laughs) and just thought, well... I don't want to try to make them scary because, I mean, look at them, so I'm going to kind of go in a different direction with it. It could entirely just be projection on my part, but I don't know. I, I like, I don't know if she's made a movie in the interim. I think her previous movie is The Wind, which you and I watched some years ago. Rather oh, good okay, horror yeah. film. And on the basis of that movie, I became a fan of hers and you know haven't seen Hyder Hair of her since, and now she comes out with FNAF, which is getting dunked on six ways from Sunday and is being generally held up as a worst of the year contender. And part of it was a stubborn desire to just not want to be wrong. (laughs) That I don't want Emma Tammy to screw the pooch Mm -hmm. when she's won my loyalty on the basis of that one film. Some of it was that that was mitigating my anti-fan status to a certain extent going into this and i wound up like i said not hating it i have theories as to why that might be the case Uh, some of them have to do with some kind of sneaky things that emma tammy does to make it go down smooth even when it's being kind of (laughs) ridiculous and horrendous and will hit all those beats as they uh as they become relevant yeah and for whatever it's worth our theme song composer more or less felt the same way we did. I uh, I saw him yesterday, and yeah, he said he thought it was it was okay. Oh uh, yeah, the, <laughs> our our stealth third shock doctor who seldom chimes in. That makes it <laughs> unanimous, folks. You heard it here first. Well, it, particularly, it's being pitted again. I mean, most people just didn't see Willy's Wonderland. It's not on most people's radar. But that being a, a shameless FNAF knockoff, the two movies are 
kind of inevitably being pitted against one another. Uh, and I have to say, I liked this a good deal more than Willy's Wonderland, Nick Cage notwithstanding. I mean, if Nick Cage had been in this movie, there would be absolutely no reason to watch Willy's Wonderland, although that movie that's true. kind of kind of squanders him in a non-speaking role. Yeah. But that's many moons ago, many episodes back. We've got a different fish to fry today. We open with a prologue of a guy getting got after hours in Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria. We see the animatronics in shadow, and already there's some competent filmmaking on display. There's a bit where like he bumps into a janitor's bucket and kind of startles himself, and it's just kind of the, the cutting is just snappy and helps you glide past the silliness of the situation right up until one of the animatronics starts stomping after him. And that's what they do. They stomp. They're like a bunch of lumbering Ed 209s. You know, they're not very <laughs> light on their feet, which no. is one issue that I have with them. They're heavy-ass robots. So the stomping would be bad enough because I prefer a more cat-like slasher antagonist who could jump on you from the shadows and you never saw him coming or heard him coming, more to the point. Yeah. But uh, it, you would have definitely heard this guy coming, even if you didn't hear the stomping, because he is doing this weird humming that recurs once or twice throughout the movie. It's just kind of these, like, idiot Barney noises, you know, this, like, and that's... That I could most definitely do without, although it does signal that maybe we're going for whimsy here rather than raw terror. <laughs> <laughs> right. It doesn't seem to be a listen to how terrifying Tiny Tim is kind of right. situation. Which, you know, can only be a good thing, I guess. We then get the opening credits, which is when I checked out uh, again as soon as I saw the creature design. And then I checked back in when we're introduced to our protagonist, Mark. Is that Mike. right? Mike, that's closer than I usually get. <laughs> he's in a he's in a mall. He's t well, okay. So we we're get given this piecemeal. I'm going to give it to you whole meal. He's taking care of his kid sister. He has an evil aunt who is vying for that kid sister. Is threatening to take him to family court, and the evil aunt is boring but she has a gormless lawyer in her corner who I found <laughs> hilarious. I found him funny right off the bat, even though he doesn't do anything in his introductory scene. He's just kind of sitting there with a glum expression on his face, and I just found him irresistible for some reason. And then later on, there's a comedy moment in a diner where he actually is given some material and made me laugh out loud. Say it with me, folks. We'll get there when we get there. For the time being, Mike's... Right? Did I fuck that up? Mike's situation is that he's got this kid's sister, and he can't provide for her, and he's worried about her getting taken away, and he is in hot water as of late because, A, he's jobless, and B, he's in the mall one day, and he witnesses what he takes to be a child abduction, but is actually just a parent huffily wrenching their kid's arm and kind of dragging them off. Because for a time, it looks like the kid is unsupervised, is kind of looked, looking around worriedly. And he's clearly got some trauma to do 
with child abductions and stranger danger because it triggers something in him and he chases the guy down and beats the crap out of him in a mall fountain. Yeah, well, just the end result is the same, but just for clarity's sake, he is not jobless prior to doing that. He's working security at the mall. That's right. And so not regular mall cops do not chase people down like that. So he's clearly going above and beyond the call of duty for his own personal trauma reasons. But also, there's at least the fig leaf of an idea that, oh, I was just doing my job, you know, yeah. or trying. See, I, see, that was entirely lost on me because in the mall setting, which we do not linger in for very long, we see him mostly seemingly off duty or at least, you know, he's being waited on by someone at like a yogurt stand. You know, the usual and so it sort of makes you see him in like a like a customer context rather than anyway, not worth belaboring that point. He's jobless now, and then he winds up in the office of one Steve Raglan, played by oh hell, what's his name? Internet darling Matthew Lillard. Matthew Lillard, thank you. Stu Mocker himself. We linger on that nameplate on his desk, Steve Raglan, for a kind of conspicuous amount of time. And I assumed that the filmmakers were doing that because it meant something lore-wise that was being wasted on me. It turns out that it's obfuscating the man's real identity, which is a fucking doozy. <laughs> That'll have to wait until the third act climax steve raglan if that is your name uh what he, he he's he's got you know i i fully expected this to be matthew lillard's only scene and he's fun he's in the trailer so he does exactly what you expect here he gets on mike's case for not being able to hold down a job and he offers him a job at this abandoned pizzeria that is for some reason still retaining the services of a night watchman the throwaway lampshade there is that the owner of the joint is a wealthy eccentric who just can't bear to let the place go so he's yeah. having it tenanted still night after night and has been doing so since the 80s which is what strains credulity about all this he's got to have some deep fucking pockets but here's the thing, and this is not something I knew going in, and it's blink and you miss it. I mean, there's a couple of things you can see subsequent props and whatnot that harken back to this. But there is a shot of Mike on a security camera sitting in a lobby. I think it's the lobby of the job center or whatever. And it's got a time and date stamp on it. And it's the year 2000. Oh, shit. Okay. So it's a matter of a decade and change rather than rapidly approaching 40 years. See, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm all about that. That again, that was totally wasted on me, totally lost on me. That's the right move. And that does make it a lot easier to square that circle. Certainly. Yeah. I mean, basically the only other clues that you get of what year it's supposed to be are, you know, like, People have those rectangular, just solid Nokia phones, mm -hmm. and cell phones in general don't play a big role, and also everybody's driving, like, 90s-era vehicles. Yeah, you, you throw one of those Nokias at Freddy's head, and he'll be down for the count, you know? <laughs> Indestructible. <laughs> 
So initially, Mike declines to work at Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria and then has a change of heart once the family court drama starts ramping up. What else did we learn about him? We learn that he has nightmares routinely about his younger brother who was snatched by some ne'er-do-well in the woods on like a picnic excursion when they were both kids, although he was the older boy and feels responsible. The first nightmare that we get basically lays it all out, and I liked that it wasn't done in a drip-feed manner, where he you know, every nightmare shows you a little more of what happened. That first nightmare really does, like, start to finish, show you what happened on the picnic trip. Yeah, the whole abduction. And I liked that because I thought it was efficient, and that it might spare us from other dream sequences, but it doesn't, unfortunately. We do get a slew of other dream sequences, which then have nothing new to tell us. And eventually they go in sort of a weird and slightly compelling direction with the dreams, but not right away. So there's definitely some redundancies there. That first one, though, is pretty good, save for the roaring sound effect that plays when the child snatcher's car starts up. It's a shot of the tailpipe. And as soon as the tailpipe starts belching smoke, we get this, like, snarl, this, like, mountain cat. <laughs> like, <laughs> Which, I, I mean, I guess portends that Freddy and company are going to be chowing down on some folks. And, and, you know, I don't know. It just makes the abductor seem more monstrous, I guess. But I, I don't know. I thought that was an unnecessary flourish. His dreams get worse when he starts showing up for duty at Freddy Fazbear's. He, in fact, so there there are, in fact, five nights in this movie, I counted, because I thought going in that there was a chance that, you know, five nights at a, as a brand has been around for so long that I thought the filmmakers might lose sight of the fact that that title is making an explicit promise to us. You know, I thought right. that they might accidentally just do four or six nights, because it didn't occur to them that there ought to be five. But there are actually five. But are there? Because the first two shifts, he just sleeps all the way through. <laughs> he is never remotely in danger, really at any point in the movie, right up to the very end when he has to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with someone who means him harm, several someones, actually. But for the most part, it's a pretty cuddly affair. He's just taking these sleeping pills. First two, two shifts go smoothly as far as he's concerned. He just dreams the night away and his dreams are more vivid. And he's dreaming exclusively about his kid brother's abduction. He watches a training video on his first night that looks like it's going to introduce us to all of the animatronics. Because you've got, you know, a cheesy 80s hair chick being like, and let's meet the stars of the show. It's, and then instead of going Freddy, Foxy, etc. Yeah, it tries to do, it's one of the few earnest attempts in the movie, I thought, to make the animatronics actually look scary because there's all this distortion. The tape is corrupted or whatever. And uh, that fell flat on its face, at least for me. But it's the only thing in his first two nights that really is even making a show of trying to be scary. And then... He leaves, let's see, I think he meets the cop, lady cop whose name escapes me, Vanessa, that's it, on yeah. his second night, and she's a huge weirdo about yes. Freddy's Pizzeria right off the bat, 
because she just spends a lot of time hanging out there and hanging out with him and it would appear that she has no actual police work to do and she's got one throwaway line about that which is not credible at all where she says well this this place is my beat you know i take that very seriously and also i loved this place when i was a kid and i kind of wish that they had just kept the i loved this place when i was a kid line and leaned into her weirdness made that performance a little twitchier and more off-putting because she is i mean she's friendly but it's much too much like here's the love interest and not what it actually is which is what's your fucking deal lady (laughs) what are you doing here i think the weirdest she gets is when she introduces him to the animatronics and she hits the big red button that launches the show and then she's like isn't this just the best thing you've ever seen in your life and it's there's no hint of irony when she says (laughs) that no she is odd and then she asks him to dance just before all the robots short out yeah, the, the wanna dance line was really odd. I thought for sure that it was going to come back later, that the movie would, like, end with them dancing, you know, because later on he could say to her, hey, how about, you know, wanna dance, or, like, you still owe me a dance, or something like that. Uh, not the case. <laughs> there, there's <laughs> one line that gets a callback, and it's it's an odd pick. It's extremely strange. I'm glad you <laughs> picked up on that. I know exactly the line you mean. <laughs> So, break of day, the two of them leave Freddy's and go their separate ways, and then some no-good mix hired by the evil aunt show up. Their end game is to discredit him and, and make him lose, you know, yet another job, because they're going to break into the joint and cost him his job, and therefore cost him his kid sister. However, they do it when he's no longer on the clock. Yeah, that's that's what doesn't make any sense to me. It's like, there's only a night watchman. If he, like, shows up for his night shift and immediately calls the police and's like, hey, he's... somebody broke in here when I was not working, when no one is working, this is not my fault. <laughs> is he really going to get fired? Right. Like... That's And then Vanessa has a line, I think, addressing that, not that she's in cahoots with any of them, although she's weird enough that she <laughs> might as well be. She's like, well, you know, if you forgot to lock the front door, then it doesn't matter that it happened during the daytime. So they're lampshading that for us as well. But it is incredibly strange. When they showed up, I thought, like, did it just cut to night three? Like, why are they, why is this happening now? Is it still daylight or isn't it? And all of them get just eviscerated by Freddy Fazbear and his furry friends. company, yeah. Yeah. And that cemented for me the impression that had been developing over those first two nights which is oh this movie i don't know what to compare it to it's like i just understood right then that the protagonist was safe and that the only people who were open season were people who transgress in some way like the bad guys basically it put me I got locked in right at this moment to like a kind of juvenile kids movie mindset where it's like, oh, Freddy and his friends only eat the bad guys. That's, that's, you know, people who break in and and bust stuff up and, and harm the restaurant. And all of a sudden I was like watching, I don't know, like, like Mac and me or the wizard or something like that. Like it just, it just, it it's like, it's bad, but it's bad. in almost like a late eighties, early nineties, old fashioned kind of way 
that I'm still kind of capable of being charmed by. The montage that happens later where they erect the, the fort with the tables and chairs really cemented that impression for me even further. Like, oh, this is just Mac and me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which, you know, is... I think a valid instinct when Freddie and company, when those are the tools you are given, I think that's the movie that you produce. You know, if you try to make them scary, you're tilting at windmills. So after all of the aunt's hired hands get turned into spaghetti, <laughs> Mike comes back to work. And this time he has the kid sister in tow. I don't remember her name, but she insists on tagging along. She is kooky in that precocious kid movie kind of way although i actually did not find her irritating which is a, a small miracle because precocious movie kids are a, a cancer so much of the time <laughs> and she's if you want to compare this to like actually good horror movies she's not a weird horror movie kid on the level of say the kid in babadook or the kid in hereditary who takes the pole to the face at 80 right. miles an hour and much ado is made of the fact that she's like neurodivergent in some way the aunt calls her mentally ill when she's just kind of a little matilda she's just quiet and likes you know likes drawing she's not well it's, uh, the, i mean she's, she's coded aunt... as being mildly autistic and i think maybe that was an, an attempt to make the aunt even more disagreeable well yeah and, and she has imaginary friends and it's like the ant has not ever heard of that concept somehow you're right it's like oh th this small child is talking to people or things that aren't there this is the onset of schizophrenia <laughs> no just yeah. a kid with an active imagination as, as soon happens. as i as soon as I get custody of this kid, it's off to the loony bin they go. <laughs> Just load that kid up with lithium. <laughs> right, while I while I cash these child support checks. So, night three. More eventful than the first two nights, but not any more perilous for our heroes. Once again, Mike goes to sleep. <laughs> and we begin to get the sense at this point that he is doing so strategically because he later tells Vanessa that he does dream more vividly at Freddy's and weird stuff starts happening with his recurring dream. He's seeing five kids who were not there the day of the abduction and one, two, three, four, five. Okay, we sense that these are connected with Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria somehow, we've been told by this point. I don't remember if we get it from Shaggy or from <laughs> or from I th Vanessa. I think it's Vanessa. But there were some disappearances in the 80s, which, you know, and bizarrely the phrase bite of 87 never comes up. So like the one lore thing that I knew <laughs> is not touched on. But in any case, these kids went missing, we assume. They just didn't go missing in the woods that day. They went missing at Freddy's and somehow these streams are getting crossed. So he is grilling the kids for information. For some reason, he thinks that they can tell him something about what happened that day. And maybe he can find out who took his brother. So we got a lot of dreams of him just chasing them through the woods. At one point, and this only happens once, he gets Freddy Krueger'd. One of the kids, like, slashes his arm, and then he's bleeding when he wakes up. Well, it happens twice. The first time, 
I think it's a little bit earlier than this, actually. It's just before he meets Vanessa. Yeah, that's when he's slash got the, on the arm. The gas, yeah. But subsequently, and this is jumping ahead a little bit. Oh, that's right. They all run at him like that scene in Doctor Sleep when they're... Or, or the scene that I compared it to when we did the Doctor Sleep episode, namely Bill the Butcher lurching out of the fog. Yeah, right. Like a, a, bu- a bunch of pint-sized Daniel Day-Lewis's. That's right. <laughs> and yeah, so he, he gets repeatedly slashed by these children in another one of these dreams. And then this time, there's several wounds on his... Okay, so- Actually, so you're not. right. That That is paid off eventually, although those wounds don't actually slow him down or hamper him in any way that yeah. I can remember. So he is awoken from this dream by his sister screaming, and you think that she has run afoul of Freddy and company, and she has in a sense, although they mean her no harm. And we go way off into Mac and me territory here. She is like, come meet my friends. This is Freddy. And now we get the roll call that I thought we were going to get during the training video. Bonnie, Chica, etc. And he's just agog. There's even that actor, uh, Josh Hutcherson, is that right? I think he does a, a pretty commendable job of playing off of this objectively quite stupid material. You know, he's he's pretty thunderstruck by these animatronics being alive. And he's even in the dream pretty incredulous about what's happening. There's a line that I liked when he's approaching one of the kids and he says, I don't know how this is possible. I need you to help me remember what you know, so even even when he's asleep, he's carrying with him a certain healthy skepticism that I think gives you an anchor as an audience member. So that's night three. Again, very cuddly. I don't remember if it's that night or the following night when they build the fort. I think it's night four because what transpires during the day between nights three and four is that Mike discovers that his kid sister has been doodling uh, Freddy and the gang, despite having never set foot in Freddy Fazbear's pizzeria, as far as we know. Uh, we also see a doodle of hers that's of a yellow rabbit, a man size, like a, like a like a big yellow Harvey basically, Mm -hmm. that the camera lingers on. And it cuts from that yellow rabbit to Vanessa in Freddy's staring into the void. Or no, no, she's staring... Right, okay, so Freddy's, like a lot of kid-friendly establishments, has kids' drawings sort of wallpapering one of the walls, and she is staring at the yellow rabbit, looking shell-shocked. And she's there before Mike shows up for duty, despite having chewed him out about leaving the door unlocked. She then proceeds to break into the place herself. Uh, right. Again, she's a total weirdo, and I feel the movie does not lean into that anywhere near enough. So Mike shows up again with his sister on night four. And so now it's the three of them, and the three of them build a fort because that's the game that Freddie wants to play. And we do, in fact, get a montage song. So we've gone full wizard at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Mike starts telling Vanessa about his dreams, and this is where he verbalizes it for us, finally says that they're getting more vivid the more nights he spends at this job, and it's almost like he can change what happened. As they're having this conversation, the kid goes on stage where Freddy and everybody are jamming out Chuck E. Cheese style, 
and she touches the strings of the guitar and belatedly much too late vanessa turns and is like no don't and an explosion of sparks comes off this guitar this guitar that is is not an or at least should not have to be a real guitar it should not have to be plugged into anything you know <laughs> chuck e cheese is not actually playing that musical instrument well, <laughs> it's i i think it just comes down to the fact that there are metal strings on it even though it's not being played and just it's it's bare metal as opposed to the polyester covering the rest of the animatronics when they touch her so she electrocutes herself and is no worse for the wear but it precipitates an argument between vanessa and mike because we're coming up on act three and so there's got to be some kind of enmity there but it's very half-assed because Vanessa is the fucking Freddy's expert. She's like laying into him for not doing a good enough job of protecting his sister. When in fact she knows all the ins and outs of this joint and was in a much better position to make sure that nothing went awry. Mm -hmm. So that's nonsense. On to night five and the movie is practically over. Needless to say, because it actually makes good on the promise of the title, which was a pleasant surprise, if you're me. <laughs> Mike is sleeping. He spends half this fucking movie sleeping. <laughs> Some protagonist. <laughs> and Although I guess he's still kind of doing proactive stuff when he's dreaming, so whatever will allow it. The kids in the dream make him an offer. It's revealed that they are, in fact... And now they, 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 they are stand-ins for the five animatronics. I think there's five of them. There would have to be. There's five kids in the dream. Well, I, I think the weird thing is there's four animatronics and then Chica is carrying around an animatronic cupcake. God, that, that cupcake sees, this was disappointing, that cupcake sees way more action than any of the full-sized monsters. <laughs> Cupcake even delivers the killing blow during a pivotal moment that we're going to get to in a few minutes here. I don't know who had such a fucking hard-on for that cupcake. It's flying around and and tearing people a new one left, right, and center, and and I don't know why. It wasn't in the game that I played half of, so (laughs) (laughs) as far as I remember. So, Mike, practically in the same breath, opts into this Faustian bargain and then opts out of it. But it's too late. The compact is sealed, and this is when you get the Bill the Butcher routine with all of them running at him and slashing him up. He awakens strapped into a chair. And this happens in the prologue as well, actually. I forgot to mention this. The guy who dies in the prologue dies in sort of a saw trap. There is a Freddy mask with a bunch of whirring gears on the inside. I mean, really, they're not they even like... really gears. No, they're, they're like... little saw blades. They're saw blades, yeah. And, you know, it chews his face up real good. We're meant to assume it's, I think, a PG-13 movie. So all of the deaths are basically bloodless. At one point, Freddy bites a lady in half bloodlessly, which should be disallowed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's... Yeah. I mean, like, was she also an animatronic? Or maybe... No, actually, his teeth were white hot, so he yeah. he <laughs> yeah, cauterized the the wound. Mm-hmm. The devil's fire. That's a, a I think 
Ian McDermott and Sleepy Hollow, one of the old men, because the, the horseman's blade cauterizes all of those neck stumps to make, keep that movie from being like a hard R. I think it's still an R-rated movie, but fewer buckets of blood than you would expect with all those decapitations. Right. So Mike, thoroughly regretting that he sold his sister to his kids in order to get his kid brother back. That's the nature of the arrangement, which he immediately wants out of. He goes running to try to intervene, although it's not at all clear how this is going to play out. Basically, those kids' ghosts are possessing the robots, and they want to turn the kid's sister into one of them so that she can play with them forever. And that all works for me. What does not work for me is that they apparently also have a penchant for murdering people by lowering jigsaw freddy masks onto their face because that right. would seem to indicate that they also turn adults into new animatronics some of the time and i feel like if you want the deal with the devil the faustian bargain to do with the kid sister to feel special and important then that has to be a kind of unique arrangement you know what i mean it can't just be something they do on a lark that doesn't produce new ghosts but I feel should. I don't know. That's a, a, a horrible muddle. When he comes to in the saw trap and he, he manages to wriggle free from his restraints and then he sees the corpses of all of the burglars from earlier, he then rendezvous with Vanessa and she gives him a really execrable exposition dump where she says it's not just the souls of those kids that are in the machines it's their bodies and they were stashed there by a prolific child murderer named william afton and you as soon as i heard that name again a little bit a few motes of dust were shaken loose somewhere <laughs> in my brain but just the way she says it you know like okay this is pandering to someone because it's so the line delivery is so pregnant with import and then she says he's my father and that explains a lot right again <laughs> i think that she should have been twitchier and stranger right off the bat it feels like they played their hand a little more than they meant to and and made her slightly too weird i'm gonna say a variation of what i often say on this program which is they made her the wrong amount of weird she either yes. should have been more normal and then had this semi-heel turn or she should have been much stranger right off the bat and they could have maybe done something with that so Mike is menaced by Freddy and his cohorts for a little while. This is the only time that they pose any threat to him at all. And it is mostly that damn cupcake just flying after him and chewing on his leg. <laughs> we also get a, more of the annoying humming from the prologue at one point, which I think comes from Foxy. But don't quote me on that. Foxy's the one who's always hunting. The other ones just kind of wander around. Foxy's got, like, dash powers. Well, yeah, and the others all uniformly look like off-brand Chuck E. Cheese mascots. And then Foxy has a fucking rusty hook for a hand. <laughs> <laughs> Foxy is just so much more demented looking than the, than the others. So I guess yeah. that makes sense. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I could buy 
that it used to be a, a plastic piece. Because when you go to fucking Disneyland and you meet a Captain Hook character wandering around and working the crowd, the hook on his wrist is like a rounded, friendly-looking plastic piece, you mm. know? It, would, it wouldn't be metal no matter what, but it's not even sharp-looking. It looks very approachable because it's fucking Disneyland. If the arm looked ragged at the end and it looked like a, a rusty hook had been like reinserted into the stump at some point i would think that was kind of sick in a like here's my boomstick kind of way uh-huh. but it looks like that's just been the design from day one i'm sure that if i were to go back and look at the like training video you would see that same hook and i think that's a missed opportunity there to show the degradation that's occurred here Right. With, the, with the animatronics getting more and more wretched with the passage of time. So William Afton shows up in the bunny suit, and I was hoping after all of this Ed 209 stomp, you know, all of this elephantine stomping around, <laughs> that when William Afton showed up, he would just be a maniac in a bunny costume, like a Donnie Darko kind of thing, but yellow. But no, he's also in an animatronic suit, and there's a reason that has to be the case, which I'm kind of okay with and kind of not, and we'll get there mere seconds from now, because this climax is dispensed with pretty quickly. William Afton is a huge ham, first of all. He's like <laughs> gloating. And talking about how, you know, I killed your brother and now I'm going to kill you. That's what we call symmetry, my amigo. You know, garbage like that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and at first I was like, oh, this guy sucks. And then the headpiece, the mask comes off and zoinks. <laughs> it's, it's Matthew Lillard. It's Matthew Lillard. It's Steve Raglan. And right away, yeah, I was like, oh shit, he's back. This makes no sense. <laughs> but but I but I was I was pleased to see him back and right away after you know, because they were pitching down his voice earlier, and then as soon as he's allowed to be more like himself, the hamminess clicked into place for me. Uh, and I was more okay with it because it's Matthew fucking Lillard. Uh, I will say the noise I made was like, what? And it was kind of, <laughs> there was some delight mixed in with the confusion. However, I would have felt undiluted delight. I would have shrieked with joy if the mask had come off and it had been the evil aunt's gormless lawyer <laughs> <laughs> crammed into that bunny costume. And I'm going to touch on his, his scene real quick. This is when they're hatching the plot to break into Freddy's in the daytime, which is a caper worthy of like a moronic Coen Brothers lead. You know? Right. Like a, just a totally cockamamie scheme. The lawyer is uh, crammed into this diner booth. The aunt is seated to his right, and she's preventing him from just getting out of the booth and walking away, which he repeatedly tries to do as the criminality in the conversation rapidly escalates he's just hearing more and more stuff that he shouldn't be hearing and he's trying to get out of there and I, I i i like i laughed more than a little bit i thought it was very very funny now that scene is marred by an annoying cameo 
from one of the YouTubers that I used to hate watch like a decade ago. He's the, the oh, waiter. Oh, is that who the waiter is? Yeah, well, because he, he oh, sticks out. He, he sticks out like a sore thumb, even if you don't know who he is. And the the thing when he's like, "That's just a theory." That's his catchphrase on fucking YouTube. Oh, gross. Yeah, it's. it's I didn't it, know any of this. Yeah, that's that's heinous. Would otherwise be without question the best scene in the movie, and probably still is. But that's a pretty serious disfiguration so unfortunately that's the last we see of the lawyer we're in the home stretch here william afton as i knew he would as soon as he showed up he gets done in by the mascots but the way that it plays out is i think half good so we we have been told by vanessa that the ghost children are in thrall to him somehow it's like he's built up a little... It'd be like all of the ghost kids, if all of the ghost kids in the Black Phone took their marching orders from Ethan Hawke, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know that this being what it is, there's only one way for William Afton to go down, and that's by these ghosts getting their revenge, like they do in the Black Phone. How this plays out is that the kid's sister has to draw a depiction of William Afton's wrongdoing she has to draw i don't even remember you know but she has a penchant for drawing that's the nature of her neurodivergence and it's uh, explained when she first gets chummy with freddie and all of them that they like her drawings and that's kind of how they bond so that being weaponized here in the 11th hour is sort of clever in a very like kid-friendly kind of way i mean it feels like the logic of a children's movie that I'm going to draw the mean man doing something bad, and then my animatronic friends are going to wise up and rip him limb from limb, but they don't actually rip him limb from limb because nothing that gory is allowed to happen in this movie. What happens is that, for some reason, the goddamn cupcake gets to (laughs) deliver the coup de grace here, or at least set it in motion. We were informed earlier by Vanessa, because she knows everything that there is to know about Freddy's, that some of the older suit models are very dangerous, and that if you trigger the mechanisms on the inside, they have these, like, spring locks that will just snap shut and make mincemeat out of you. So the cupcake lunges at William Afton, bites his belly, thereby triggering this horrible spring trap mechanism, which then starts closing in on him and snapping shut. And, ooh, ah, you know, Matthew Lillard is making a lot of funny, pained expressions as he sinks to the floor. But it's not like blood squirts out of his eyes and ears. It's not like, given what we think ought to be happening inside that suit, he is not responding appropriately, you know? It looks like he's got a bad Charlie horse. <laughs> right. He's like, I gotta I got sit down for a second. <laughs> and the uh, other animatronics circle up and close in on him as our heroes escape. And as they're escaping, the restaurant is sort of falling down around their ears. We get an epilogue where Vanessa is recuperating in the hospital. I think that her dad stabbed her but I don't yes. really remember. He did. And then there's a cute little send-off where brother and sister are having a family meal. The aunt is apparently no longer in the picture. Well, one of the animatronics killed her, don't you remember? I don't, no. <laughs> Was she... I don't remember. Yeah, okay. 
I guess that explains why we never see the lawyer again, more's the pity. <laughs> right. When does that happen? Is it during the burglary? No, it's it's subsequent to that. I don't remember oh, it's which when, night it's, it was. It's when Freddy comes to abduct the little girl, right? It would have well, but to be. It, but it's it's not Freddy. It's like a duplicate Freddy that they assembled out of scrap because right. he's in much it's, worse shape than the regular Freddy. Right, he's he's missing an eye. That's right. And that the fact that it was a different Freddy was lost on a lot of people. I saw a Twitter thread about this the other day making fun of the filmmaker's <laughs> indifference or ineptitude, not delineating one Freddy from another because he just shows up for that one that one little scene there. I have a lot more to say. Kind of an embarrassing <laughs> amount of stuff to say more after the break. Hi, this is Mike. I was just calling to see if that job that you offered was still available. Yes. The security guard. I will take anything. This place was huge in the 80s with the kids. They shut it down years ago. The owner's just not ready to let it go yet. I will work, and you will sleep. I understand. Come here, Ed. Hello, listeners. It's Jim, here as always during the break to tell you some stuff you probably already know. Please follow us on Twitter at ShockDoctorsPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ShockDoctorsPod, or check us out on Apple Podcasts podcast is also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you've got an idea for a movie you'd like us to check out, feel free to send us a DM on social media or email us at shockdoctorspod at gmail.com. And now, back to the show. In the 80s, kids went missing. The police searched Freddy's top to bottom. Hello? <laughs> They never found them. That's why the place shut down. There are ghost children possessing giant robots. Thanks for the heads up. Technically, they're animatronics. What do they want? They want to make her like them. Bobby! Tell me how to stop them. <laughs> it's too late. And we're back. So just to touch briefly on something we alluded to in the plot rundown, there is one weird callback line that happens, and I don't know why it happens. So when Mike meets Steve Raglan, who we later learn is William Afton. <laughs> I mean, talk about Scooby-Doo. I mean, that is <laughs> yes worthy of any, you know, I would have gotten away with it too if it weren't for you darn kids, uh, any of those unmaskings. It's, it's... Yeah, bananas. the only difference is he unmasks himself. You're right. <laughs> he's not tied up. But when he's in the career counseling office and Matthew Lillard is pitching him on this shitty job, but the only job he can give him, he says, you only have to do one thing. Make sure nobody breaks in. And keep the place tidy. And Mike says, because Mike's kind of a wise ass and a little bit grumpy, he's like, that's two things. Fast forward to the climax. This is truly head spinning. When Vanessa enters the scene and is pointing a gun at her father and they have this whole big confrontation, it turns out that she was in on it. 
to a certain degree, not the killing of the children necessarily, but like luring Mike in there and so forth. And Matthew Lillard says, you had one job. You were supposed to keep him in the dark and kill him if he got too close. Something like that. And then she says, very dramatically, that's two things. (laughs) I mean, that's the Let's just be very clear. She was not privy to the conversation that was had in the counseling office. It's not like she was sitting there. You know what? If they had just if if Hello Zep had played during this scene, and there had been a flashback of her stepping out of the broom closet, that line would be a fucking bullseye. <laughs> dun 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 dun. dun, dun. <laughs> I mean, holy shit, right? <laughs> Yeah, you're not wrong, but they don't do anything like that. Instead, it's just, it's like a weird kind of dramatic irony. Like It reminded me... We know of, about it. It reminded me of an equally fucked up, nonsensical callback. What was it? Gwendolyn Christie's death in Star Wars Episode Eight. She mm. tells John Boyega, you'll always be scum. And then he says, rebel scum. And it's like, why? Why would you know? Like, yeah, it's 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 a memorable line, you rebel scum. But it's not. I can't even remember who that said to Han Solo. Probably I feel like he's in yeah. the shot at least. It, why would you know what went down on Yavin? No, not Yavin. Endor, the fucking Ewok planet, whichever one that is. I think it's Endor. Well, that's, that's that's the forest moon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, like, um, has that moment just passed into rebel lore where like he, he, he it's just not a callback that it makes any sense for him to make and, no. and, and in that way it absolutely 100% reminded me of her nonsensical callback but again you sneak a little hello zep action in there and show her eavesdropping on the earlier convo and uh, everything would be right as rain or he could fucking, we could have a flashback of father and daughter, like, the the dad is bringing her into the conspiracy, and, like, he taped the conversation or something. Right. And is playing it back. But no, yeah, she's got no reason to know that saying those are two things is, like, a sick burn. You could even get it from Mike, <laughs> potentially, if because if, I think the line is worth keeping if you can just iron out the wrinkle somehow you know i mean mike could even say to her they told me all i had to do was keep people you know make sure no one breaks in and i was like hey that's that's two things mister you know that's i don't know that would be a little tortured i like the hello zep method better but But of course i do so speaking of matthew lillard and his whole deal he's great I'm glad the mask comes off pretty quickly because I really hated the pitched down hammy gloating that preceded the reveal. It was pitched down some, but I think I picked up on the voice. There was an, like the pitch down is not consistent. It like cuts in and out somewhat. I, I did not pick up on the voice. I was absolutely flabbergasted. Yes. And then some <laughs> when I saw who it was. Well, and and you said when we were talking about the job center scene that you just immediately figured, okay, that's his one scene, 
And I thought, well, number one, it's Matthew Lillard. Number two, he's way too much of a weirdo in this scene for him not to resurface somehow. Mm. And at that point in the movie, we still hadn't seen him come back. He's like, oh, he's he's got to be the guy, right? And so I, it turns out, bing, bang, boom, he was there. But I was completely unprepared. Movie absolutely rug-pulled me. <laughs> so... Yeah, just speaking of his weirdness in that first scene, it was almost... I mean, it's it's weird for me to say this because it didn't hit any tripwires in your brain at all, so I can't say, like, it was too obvious. <laughs> it, well, it might have been. I figured... I mean, I, I understand perfectly what you mean when you say he's got to come back. It's Matthew Lillard. I ran in entirely the opposite direction. I figured, okay... It's Matthew Lillard. That's definitely like his cameo, and we're like it's like the waiter. You know, it's like he, he's got other shit to do. That's all we're gonna see of him. He is, you know, I guess like father, like daughter. He is a major weirdo in that scene. But I, I thought that was just Matthew Lillard trying to make something out of a nothing role. So that's why I was so blindsided. I think I had I had rationalized away all of the red flags that you were more receptive to. Yeah. Uh, and I guess in context, once we get to the end, it makes more sense because he's reviewing Mike's file and it's like he realizes what Mike's last name is, which we don't learn at that time. And I think we learn later that it's Schmidt. So I, I don't know, maybe he, he's Hall of Fame third baseman for the Philadelphia Phillies. Um, <laughs> I completely forgot about that. He freezes up. For like ten minutes, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's, like it, it's, oh, that's your name, and that's what causes him to offer him the job, right? And, that, and well, yeah, right. With the with the later context, we're like, oh, it's because he realizes, hey, I killed this guy's kid brother. This is delicious. I must take him to my murder dungeon. Symmetry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is incredibly. I mean, conspicuous is too weak a word for it. He really does, like, almost do the smile from How the Grinch Stole Christmas, where it, like, goes up <laughs> past his eyebrows. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're a mean one, indeed. Uh, yeah, I, I'd completely forgotten about that by the time the climax rolled around. Yeah, of course he did it. Of course he's the murderer, obviously. <laughs> I should be more embarrassed that the Five Nights at Freddy's movie hoodwinked me so effortlessly. But uh, I am a little embarrassed. But I've got a lot of goodwill towards this movie, probably more than it deserves. Some of that is residual goodwill from Emma Tammy's previous directorial effort. Although Always Shine is at least as good at, as The Wind, if not a little better and oh shit what's her name sophia to i think is that director's name when the next time she got up to bat black she, christmas. she made black christmas which i had almost nothing nice to say about no. so that goodwill can be squandered uh, it just wasn't in this case which is incredibly bizarre to me because i don't like this material you know uh right. really i don't know and every you know everyone's ragging on it uh, making it out to be some kind of a debacle which it sort of is but it's an old-fashioned disaster, like The Wizard or Mac and Me or other movies, I'm sure, <laughs> that, that I, I would like to stop name-dropping those two, because this used to be a whole subgenre of, like, bad children's entertainment, you mm -hmm. know? 
It's a little bit of a they don't make them like they used to thing. I don't know that she was deliberately striving for that, but it just it just happened to hit that sweet spot for me. It's like the kind of movie that in the early to mid 90s I would rent like once and then never again, but it would stay with me. And as an adult, I'd be like, what the fuck was that? With the Go on one of your lost media searches. Yes. I just tracked down one of my white whales recently. Uh, I may have more to say about this, uh, but then again, I may not. Uh, it was called The Hug a Bunch. Took me fucking forever to find. Uh, <laughs> I only remembered two scenes from it, two shots more like. And I, I, I got lucky on Halloween night, which compounded the spookiness. Wow. You know, a few weeks back and, uh, and, and, and finally got to put that to bed. I felt like I had cracked a cold case after many, <laughs> many, many years. It's a, a real rush every time. H-U-G-G-A, hug a bunch. <laughs> and, and actually, that's not a bad example of the kind of bad kids movie that I'm talking about. Five Nights kind of slots right in there, at least for me. And I think that will be wasted on the target demographic because they're a good deal younger than I am. They would have been like little kids when the first Five Nights at Freddy's game came out. That's the age range that this phenomenon really took off with. Yeah, they're weird kid touchstones when they're adults are going to be things like Skibbity Toilet. Yeah, right. <laughs> Fuck me. That's, that made me feel a thousand years old the first time I heard about it. It's it's like a parody thing in a movie to be like, boy, it's really gone down the tubes, hasn't it? It can't get any dumber than this. It's a cliche, you know, as you're closing in on your mid-30s or older or whatever, to be like, boy, I'm really out of touch. I don't know what anyone sees in this. I don't know what the kids are up to these days, the youths. Skibbity Toilet is a nightmare from hell. I don't know. It's horrifying. <laughs> it makes me feel like Methuselah. I, I just, I, I, I something, it, it broke something inside of me, truly. Yeah, yeah, it's... But again, it's not just horrifying because I feel old and out of touch. It's like legitimately upsetting to look at. Sort of. I mean, at, at least the, what the, I saw. The, the Gary's mod element of it obviates that for me to a certain extent because i look at it and i'm like oh that's just like a half-life 2 character model i'm not scared of that perhaps so speaking of things that don't scare me i was not scared by this movie i really didn't get the sense that it was trying to be scary the only jump scares of note are all jokes they are all to do with this little figurine that keeps getting the drop on people. <laughs> There's actually a mid-credits sting to do with this figurine putting in one last appearance. And th those jokes never landed for me, but the fact that the loudest jump scares are punctuating a comedy beat sort of tells you what this movie is all about. And that's the wavelength I was ultimately able to get on. And lawyer notwithstanding, it's not even that funny, so I can't even heartily recommend it on that basis. But that is how it is best enjoyed, nonetheless. If you go in with that mindset, you will get the most out of it. Your mileage may differ, but you'll get something out of it, I would think. Yeah. There's a couple things I want to touch on real quick. One, Mike has this poster. It's initially on the ceiling above his bed, and then he takes it down and puts it up 
in his office, the security office at Freddy's. And it's a poster with like a picture of a forest or something. And it says Nebraska pining for something. I don't know, pining just... for Nebraska. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's pining for Nebraska. And the first thing I thought was, yes, this encapsulates how sad this man's life is. <laughs> that pining for Nebraska is his big dream. It's the thing he puts on the ceiling above his bed. Right. Like, my God. Talk about having no hope. Yeah, he is a, a pretty shiftless, sleepy guy. He's hard to root for, but I, don't, I found him pretty affable. Which that, that alone was surprising. More surprising was that I liked the precocious kid sister. I liked her performance. I liked the way she was written. For the most part, she's... I don't necessarily want to wish this evil upon her, but if they make another orphan movie, they should just have her play Esther because she's a mm. dead ringer for the child actor who plays Esther back when she was a child actor. <laughs> and not just computer de-aged. Yeah. Or computer shrunk anyway. Right. Or just shot from above. <laughs> the one other thing I wanted to get to was Matthew Lillard has a line as the climax is winding down where he's having all the spring traps puncture his abdomen and then he's being dragged away into the bowels of the restaurant by Freddie and company. He says, I always come back. And that line just baffled me. It is baffling. So is he a, is he a necromancer? <laughs> like, Who the fuck is, knows? Is, At is he... I mean, it would explain why he has this weird magical power over the ghosts of the dead children. Right. I don't know. Who shouldn't need prompting to want revenge. Well, and he is, in fact, alive when the movie ends. We forgot to mention this. There's another stinger in addition to the little figurine jump scare. It either happens during the credits or immediately precedes them. He's in a back room somewhere still in agony still being chewed <laughs> up by the spring traps which indicates that he might be immortal and they're just torturing him indefinitely albeit bloodlessly right on some janitor closet or another i think it's the kitchen actually not the others yeah. but yeah i mean prior to him saying that there's no indication that there's anything supernatural going on at least that he does himself Right. Obviously, there are ghost children inhabiting these animatronics. But, yeah, it's just... I Always Come Back is some shit that, like, I don't know, Freddy Krueger might say. He would probably right. append the word bitch onto the end of it. <laughs> or, you know, Vigo the Carpathian, or, or, or whatever. I mean, like, some kind of supernatural villain who has been defeated at least once before. Right. He's not, and then he can say, I always come back. He's a pedophile. He's not Pennywise. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, he probably is supposed to be a fucking warlock or something. Take it up with the waiter. He's probably got a theory or two cooking. I, I truly couldn't hazard a guess. There's a funny bit, I don't think intentionally in this case, at the end of the movie, when Mike goes to visit Vanessa in the hospital, and she's either comatose or just happens to be under when I he drops in. I think she's got a breathing tube on her. Yeah, and he's standing at the foot of her bed, speaking to her sleeping body, and he says, 
I'm, I'm having a hard time uh, processing, you know, everything. <laughs> and, he's, and he sounds like a confused moviegoer who doesn't know what the fuck they just watched. And it gives the whole movie a little bit of a fever dream quality that I actually like, uh, although I don't know necessarily that it was intentional, at least with regards to that one line. So, you know, Matthew Lillard potentially being a warlock can kind of just be folded into that. It's another thing that I'm just having a hard time processing. Right. I don't necessarily love the way the kids are integrated, the ghost kids are integrated uh -huh. into the movie. It's muddier than it should be, but it is. I, conceptually, and... I'm, I think I'm on board with it. The execution is wanting. Well, conceptually, it's fine. I mean, you have to theoretically have some kind of explanation why these animatronics are murderous. Why Why not? You know? Yeah. But the ghost children themselves, when they're divorced from the animatronics, they don't... I mean, sure, they all look different, I guess. But other than the, like, fucking Hitler youth kid, <laughs> that's uh -huh. that's unfair. But he's just very blonde and blue-eyed. Well, and he's, he's the most Mephistophelian. Of the yeah. of the of the tots, you know. He's well, the and he's who, the only one who gets to talk, right? And he so he pitches the bargain. Not that this should matter necessarily, but you don't get any indication. Like, okay, which of these other four corresponds to which animatronic? You know, what what are there's nothing that distinguishes any of them really. Yeah, and then sometimes they appear. I mean, if the only time we saw them was in Mike's dreams. Maybe that works, but they crop up in real life, too. Sometimes, like, simultaneously or in quick succession with the animatronics. And yeah, that just muddies the waters in a way that I didn't really like. On that note, the one thing that I like about those waters being muddy is that there's a, a dialogue exchange between Mike and his sister that I was a little bit wowed by and kind of taken aback by where he is trying to make sense of everything. And I think he has just found her drawings of Freddy and the gang. And he says, part of the reason that I was so taken by this is that it starts on a note that I did not like and then immediately swerved and saved it. So it goes a little something like this. I think he says, those machines, and then she cuts him off and she says, you mean my friends? And I'm like, okay, that's a little bit fucking precious. But then he says... Yeah. Are are they ghosts? And she's like, well, yeah, of course. How else could they make the robots move? So, like, <laughs> in, in one line, she's like, she's holding in her brain the fact that they are her friends and ghosts and robots. And she's just completely nonplussed. And then the cherry on top is that she says, you know, she asks for like a second helping of soup. I think. Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, this doesn't sound like much, but it gave me a little twinge of writer envy where I was like, oh, yeah, I mean, it is hard to reconcile the fact that they are so many different things at once. It is conceptually messy. But if you just bundle it all up in the brain of a neurodivergent eight year old, you know, if she doesn't care, then neither do I. You know, and I, and I was I was kind of tickled by that. Especially because when she says, my friends, you think, okay, so it hasn't occurred to her that they're ghost robots. And then the <laughs> next thing she says is, yeah, they're, it's, they're all three. Obviously they're ghosts. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, and that, that does fit into a broader trend that at first I thought was kind of dumb, but I came around on it and ended up thinking that it was probably the best way this could have gone. Mike seems to take all of this shit in stride. Yeah. In terms of, like, there's no incredulity, there's no mental resistance to any of the concepts being thrown around or theories that he develops himself or are presented to him. It's just like, okay, ghost kids. And then he asks <laughs> Vanessa about it. It's like, oh, yeah, there's ghost kids. He's like, okay. And I guess it's somewhat prepared for because his whole thing with dreaming about his brother's abduction over and over is he's trying to do almost like a lucid dreaming thing. He's deliberately, he's forcing himself to dream about that same day over and over because he's trying to take control of the dream and learn more and try and remember specifically the abductor's face, seeing if he can find it in there somewhere. I would settle for a license plate. (laughs) sure whatever so i guess if and he carries around this book i forget what it's like this beat up old paperback it's called like dream vision or dream logic or something or other so he's set up to be the right kind of like maybe slightly dim-witted kook (laughs) (laughs) well and he's despite the fact that he spends so much of the movie asleep he acts sleep deprived when he's awake maybe because he's nightmaring constantly and so Mm -hmm. he is just like he just strikes you as being like you said psychologically susceptible to whatever weirdness comes his way i think it's actually rather nicely done yeah well and and again initially i felt like these are some pretty big logical leaps he's making but then as i got more accustomed to it and i thought about it, it's like Well, no, we've often said that protagonists' mental resistance to or outright railing against the central conceit of so many horror movies just makes them take longer. Yeah. There's really no no value added, and we're we're always clamoring for that stuff to be cut back. Most of the time, yeah. Almost always. And in this case... Yeah, they just went ahead and they fucking did it by making him a bit of a weirdo. Yeah, they just gave him enough of the right kind of baggage so that he could be down to party. (laughs) (laughs) And I could have, you know, I don't know. I mean, I can understand having one scene where there's some resistance coming from the protagonist if you're trying to establish that they've got their head screwed on right. But one scene is all you need. And then something has to happen that gets them over that hurdle. Uh, certainly if you have more than one scene, then it basically has to be a waste of time. More than one scene of that variety where they're, as you said, railing against the very premise of the film in which they're (laughs) trapped. Yes. (laughs) I have a couple other small notes. I've harped on about this enough. I won't continue to harp on about the fact that I don't like the look of Freddy and company. It's not just that they don't strike fear into me. I just find them kind of, I don't know, unappealing even by, like, Chuck E. Cheese standards. Like, I find Charles Entertainment Cheese kind of (laughs) more eerie than any of the animatronics in the Five Nights franchise that I've seen. The only time that I liked the creature design was occasionally when he's being relatively benign. 
you will get a close-up shot of Freddy, and he's he's often squinting, and they've all got like kind of a glow to their eyes, like an electric glow, sort of reddish glow. And that, coupled with the squint, produced several shots where it looked like Freddy had been burning trees in between <laughs> takes. And that made me laugh heartily. And yeah. so I warmed to Freddy for those fleeting moments, and then that was that. I do wish that they had made the lady cop a whole lot weirder. I was, for a time, hoping that it was going to be revealed that she was not actually a police officer. <laughs> that mm, she had, like, sure. killed a cop and stolen her uniform and had some nefarious intent, which I guess she kind of does. Could have done with more of the lawyer, obviously, because <laughs> he's a joy and a delight. And I guess that's it. I uh, goes without saying that I liked this more than I thought I would, which is to say that I enjoyed it at all. Correct. But <laughs> but I liked it a little bit more than at all. And that's more than shocking to me. And, and I think I'm having an overcorrection here, you know, an, an overreaction, just because I'm so pleased to have gotten anything out of this movie i'm grading on a curve because extrinsic to the podcast i recently watched dear david from this year which is based on a twitter thread where a uh, a web comic cartoonist talks about how his apartment is haunted and uh the twitter thread gave bees the creeps didn't really do anything for me so bees insisted that we watch this movie which is the debacle that everyone is making fnaf out to be yeah I, I hear that movie is absolutely execrable well it's just not enough people have seen it if more people had seen it then people would be going much easier on five nights I, i'm sure because that is like a worst of the year contender it's a, a real shit pile so do not watch dear david however you should consider watching a short film from several years ago called the hug which is about uh, it's only about, you know, five, ten minutes long, and it, it, it concerns a bite of 87 style incident where a child is killed by uh, Chuck E. Cheese animatronic, basically. And I said before that I like Five Nights at Freddy's, the film, more than Willy's Wonderland. I like The Hug more than either. And it's, you know, it's not a masterpiece. It's a horror short. There's a quintillion of them on YouTube. But this one is pretty good. It, I think, is, to date, the best realization of the Five Nights premise that I've seen. And uh, its shortness and sweetness are both assets when it comes to that. Because there's just not... Murderous pizza restaurant mascot is not crying out for novel-length <laughs> exercises in lore and backstory <laughs> and character development it's better suited to you know maybe something a little longer than the hug maybe like a goosebumps episode or an are you afraid of the dark episode i'm constantly name dropping those shows of late i must be getting old getting sentimental but i think yeah you know the hug if anything could stand to be slightly longer but it's fine for what it is and it feels uncannily actually like the opening scene to a FNAF ripoff movie that just doesn't exist uh, but it's kind of all you need and the titular hug is a lethal one that probably goes without saying so do check that out 
And you know what? Maybe watch The Hugga Bunch. Speaking of hugs, <laughs> uh, hugs in The Hugga Bunch are not fatal. They are a source of good and are in fact used to vanquish <laughs> a bunch of goblins. And it's a, it's a, it's a Muppety affair. It's a, you know, a little girl gets spirited away to a kind of Jim Henson-y wonderland where she uses hugs to solve problems and goes up against an evil queen an evil queen who dies a kind of for a kid chilling death where uh well i'm not gonna get into it but that's one of the two scenes that i remembered and re-encountering it on halloween night did make me feel like a fucking jake gyllenhaal putting it all together at the end of zodiac <laughs> finally <laughs> I, I can i can rest <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, there are any number of horror movies about murdered children. Obviously, it's big. We've referenced most of them at one time or another, so I'm going to take a different tack. I'm going to recommend, and Matt already mentioned this, but I'm going to recommend Emma Tammy's prior film, The Wind. It's about a woman out on the frontier in the uh, Old West in the mid to late 1800s, and it's basically just about isolation in the middle of nowhere, and there is a spooky wind that blows, and it's, to my recollection, mostly psychological. I don't think, does there end up being, like, an evil spirit in the wind, or is it really just all in her head? I think there is, but I, like you, I, do, I don't remember it being very definitive. Yeah. Well, in any case, very atmospheric, quite spooky, well-acted. Also, not that this means anything, but one of the supporting roles is played by the lead actress from Slender Man. Yeah, well, because the two main girls that I remember being in Slender Man are her and Joey King. Joey right. King has gone on to have more of a career, so it was nice to see the lead from Slender Man have something of a something of a redemption arc, at least in my eyes, for whatever that's worth. Not very much, but, you know. Well, she, yeah, she made a good movie. Unfortunately, that and Slender Man both came out in 2018, so I don't uh -huh. know what she's been up to since necessarily. But anyway, yeah, check out The Wind from 2018. Another Emma Tammy joint. Well, we have survived five nights in Freddy Fazbear's pizzeria. Yes, like William Afton, we are still alive. <laughs> we always come back. We always come back. And we We'll be back for the next episode. Until then, I'm Jim Smith. I'm Matt Gerandese. And we are the Shock Doctors. We'll see you later. As always, we have some acknowledgments. Our music was composed by Will Connor. Audio for the Bumpers was taken from Five Nights at Freddy's official trailer, uploaded by Universal Pictures. All rights reserved. Our next episode will be up on Sunday, November 26th, and we will be discussing Eli Roth's holiday-themed slasher, Thanksgiving. See you then.